0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. I am super excited today um, about launching um, a new series that's just going to be three weeks long, and it's called The Normal Church. And the reason why I'm excited about that is because the very first time in 2012 when this church launched in this very theater, the first series that Chris ever preached on was the series called The Normal Life. And some of you guys are even recalling this and reminiscing about this. And, and I mean, to be honest, it's like there's nothing even to be reminisced about because we're still that church. I really do believe we're still in the same place. And I still believe we still have the same calling from God. Um, and, and what God calls us to do, he doesn't really back out of, you know, he's, he's, he's consistent in that way. He's unchanging in that way. And so um, that, was a, that was a time when this church, if you've been here for a short amount of time, was launched of a Young Twenties group called Resonate. There's about 400 people that used to meet in downtown Pres on Wednesday night. And the vision for the church was just this idea that God wasn't stuck in a church. And that uh, this church, as it was sent out, was to reach all types of people from all types of places um, and to help them understand that God was not staying in church waiting for them to get there, but God was actually chasing them down, seeking them out right where they were. And the, the value set behind that was this idea that, and this is where the series comes from, is that the normal life is all predicated upon what's your definition of normal. Because the idea is that if we were to open up our Webster dictionary, and then we were to go up to heaven, whatever dictionary God uses up there, and we looked at the word normal, which is standardized or meets the standard or is what you would expect, that those two answers would be different. Like what is normal to Jesus would be different from what is normal to us But in fact, that what Jesus calls normal is actually the most normal thing that could ever be. He lives the most normal life. And so, so if we were to have an audience with heaven uh, and talk to heaven about what it calls normal, in some ways we might actually find that he would go beyond and break the mold of what we'd ever expect or imagine, but in some ways he actually might cause our, our, our lofty ideals about what the kingdom of God is like, and he would break it down to smaller things, like little moments in the car in praise music or. Or when we talk about equip value, like the little times with your son or your daughter by the pool that are coming up in the summer, like those things are valuable to God. We might put on him a certain brand standard of what we think of as church, like the big moment with the lightning bolts and the lights, and, and this is when so-and-so came out and preached, and it was awesome. And, and, and the conversation in the normal life, as I understood it, which I was not here for, was just this invitation of God, if you want to increase my expectation, then increase it. But if I'm putting an expectation on what I think a moment with the Lord should be, then, then deflate that thing so I can understand what true normal life would be like. So today is about the beginning of a new series that we're going to look at in the book of Acts, specifically in Acts chapter two, to talk about what the normal church should look like. When the Holy Spirit falls in Pentecost, the minute after that happens, he mobilizes a church, which actually turns into a group of 3,000 people from 150 people, in ways that could not have been possible even two seconds before he arrived. And so within the pages of just Acts 2 and 3, and that's all that we're going to look at in the next three weeks for this series, we see the Holy Spirit enabling and empowering a church to do what it couldn't do before without the Holy Spirit being present. We see thousands of people come to faith and come to know and trust and see God clearly for the first time because of Holy Spirit revelation. We see in the next chapter hundreds and dozens of people Uh, becoming radically generous and radically forgiving and radically, um, so much so, giving of one another that there was literally no need between this new group and movement of church. And then even beyond that, we would all heard great stories about how Jesus just rubbed mud and spit into somebody's eye and all of a sudden they're healed or he popped some soldier's ear back on. But in Acts chapter three, we turn the page and we find that just an everyday, used to be everyday kind of farmer, everyday person just like you and me like causes a person to just raise up, a person invalid that's sitting outside the temple gates that's never walked before to instantly walk. We see the Holy Spirit redefining what normal looks like for everyday people like you and me, taking the dictionary and having no respect for our dictionary, ripping it out and putting his dictionary in our hands instead. Let me read the scripture for us, and I'll open us in prayer. This scripture is Acts 2.22. It says this, Peter stands up among the eleven and preaches... Uh, to this large group of people in an open-air pulpit. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up on that day, He raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. God, I thank you for um, giving us a new definition of normal. I truly believe that as we step into the abundant life, the resurrected life, what you would call the normal life, that we actually find more peace, more ease, more comfort, and a lighter yoke than we'd ever think. Thank you, God, for, for relieving us, for setting a higher standard in ways that we've lowered them, but also relieving us of the heavy yokes that we sometimes put on ourselves. Um, and as a church, in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, those of you guys that, have been, that are born in kind of the mid-80s, you know, and you know me how much I love the 90s, you know how much karate meant to the 90s. Um, it, was, it was a big deal. Um, karate is kind of a thing that they pick people up in buses now, I'm told, and they kind of bus them off for 45 minutes for babysitting. But th- that's not how we did it in the 90s. Like, karate was, like, a really important thing, like, at school. Like, it was like, I don't care if you're a quarterback, like, how many boards can you break? And I think it was, like, it was the spirit of the age. It was Ninja Turtles. I think it was just a perfect storm where Mr. Miyagi and Daniel-san, you know, like, they... They told this really awesome David Goliath story, but through the, through the thing of martial arts. And, and then you had, like, the, 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 the edgy, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme with that curly, like, mullet that he would, like, swing around in the back in slow motion. You know, you guys are in a good spot right now. If you guys know what I'm talking about, like, I'm taking you to a really good spot right now. That's when things were real. That's when things were right. So, 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 I, so I, I begged my parents to sign up for karate class. And... Uh, And so we show up at what's called, it's in Albany, New York, Valarie's Karate Center, okay? And, um, you know, you don't need to be there. You just need to think about, like, Cobra Kai, right? Uh, You need to think about, like, the guy, the big dude off of Napoleon Dynamite. This guy, Ted, I'm sure his name was or whatever, has, like, sleeveless black gi on with, like, this massive tiger, like, stitched down his leg. And I'm like, this guy's awesome. He's going to tell me everything that I need to know about women in life. And so I'm in there like for a week and my mom is like, this just doesn't smell right. This is, these are the bad guys. These aren't the good guys. I think it was like weekend. She realizes there's this sign above the door that just said something like winning is everything, losers or something like that. And my mom was like, out, we're out of here. This is lame. We're not doing this. So I was heartbroken. So my dad was a black belt, and my mom just doesn't put up with stuff like that. So they looked around through the phone book. Remember phone books? Remember these things? You had to, like, look them up in alphabetical order. The yellow page, remember the yellow ones? Those are the business ones. It was crazy that we even did that. But anyways, so he's in the yellow pages, and they find Fidoshin Karate, Japanese Fidoshin Karate, out in Latham, New York. It's, like, 45 minutes away. It's, like, the Pelzer of karate, right? So we drive out there. My dad is instantly happy, man. I mean, I mean it's, it's just, the, it's so real. So um, it's like, so here's Linda. Here's Linda, uh, senpai Linda, who is just a sweet, sweet lady. If we have that picture, maybe not I can explain her. She's just like this little Japanese woman. She's probably like 120 pounds, 5'8", and could snap your neck, like just by looking at you. She could pile drive with her elbows. I am not kidding, more than any other man in that dojo. I was there for four years she could pile drive through like seven cement bricks with her elbow. <laughs> the loudest she ever got, boom, she would just snap them, like Jedi style. And, uh, and it was like, there's no air conditioning in this thing, man, it's just hot. It just stinks in there, it just smells like grit in there, you know, and my dad loved it. And uh, there's just fans going and like, there's no, there's just no flash, we don't do spin kicks in here. We don't have we don't have stitches on our clothes. Like we we train. She had like a Japanese instructor. She would like back in the day we had VHSs and no YouTube. She would send the VHS back to Japan to get her belt sent to her. And then they would send her a new tape that she would learn. Like this is how authentic this woman was. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like the real deal. And I just remember I learned so much from her. And I remember watching her, instead of it seeming like a business, it felt like art. You know, there's a difference between, like, martial arts velaris and, like, fedosian karate. Like, she wasn't trying to prove anything, is the way that I told Kyra this morning. It was like she had something to say and express, and the only way that she could do it was through form fighting like that. And authority is something that we talk about sometimes. It's hard to define, but everyone experiences it. It's hard to put on an org chart who really has authority in an organization. You ever experienced this before? you're in a table in a boardroom and everyone's talking and clamoring and we go on for an hour and a half and then the meeting kind of stops and one person raised their hand, they say that quiet word that like stills the whole meeting and everybody listens to it. It's like the truth of the day. It doesn't have to like speak up, doesn't have to get loud, doesn't have to demand that it has power, it just has authority, you know, that that feeling. It's like when you go to college and you think you have authority because you went to school for four years and learned education, then you come to your third grade class and they're like, Oh, you thought you had authority? I'm nine and watch me lead this entire class the opposite direction that you want it to go because I have authority. You might have the power, but I have the authority, right? There's a way that mom can just look at you and there's no weapons needed and you're melted. You're just hiding in different corners you've never even found in the house because, because of authority. When we see Peter preaching this sermon, this first sermon, this is like the first passion conference, you know? It's like the first open air meeting. And when he preaches this thing, it's not eloquent. And he doesn't have a bunch of tweetable phrases, but he preaches with authority. And we had seen this before in Jesus, but we had never seen it before in anybody else except for him. We had seen people reason and debate and discuss and memorize the Torah, but nobody knew God the way that Jesus knew God. We had seen Peter. Peter is a, you know, I wouldn't say it's confidence. It's very compulsive, he was very ready to try things and, and to be bold if you call that bold to walk on on water or slice off somebody's ear or or just do whatever kind of like kind of came to his head. But you see him preaching in this the opening passage. Opening remarks of his sermon Peter stood up, stood up among the 11 he raises his voice. He addresses the crowd and he says, "I want you to listen carefully to what I have to say." That's like when Liam Neeson picks up the phone. That's authority on taken. I want you to, like, I ha, like, like I'm, not, I'm not making things up right now for you to, like, think that I'm more powerful than I am. I have a lot to say, and it's your decision to listen, but I want you to listen carefully to what I have to say. This is authority that comes to Peter. And it's a lot different from the last time that we saw him. It's a lot different from kind of like when he is scared of the slave girl and running from his identity and, and denying the Christ that he had walked with for such a long time. He is is a completely different person. And this is the sermon that he preaches, and this is what we'll look at for our passage today. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. And I want you to see, there's many places that the gospel is preached, but this is, in three verses, the clearest I've ever heard, the gospel. And by the gospel, I mean the simple good news of why Jesus came. Jesus had to die for a reason. He wasn't on a dare. He wasn't on a bet. He wasn't like, hey, guys, watch while I resurrect. Like he was he was here for a reason. And the death meant something. And the gospel is what gives us a context to understand what his death means. And so he preaches not only with a boldness, but with an accuracy we've never heard before. And this is the nature of the Holy Spirit. One of the subtexts of this sermon is just what the Holy Spirit can do in us that we can't do if he's not here. And so there's this boldness and this clarity where he says, fellow Israelites, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. The early church would summarize the gospel in three simple words, that Jesus is Lord. And that's what this statement is saying. I met a man who is literally so full of life, so full of power, so full of love that everything he touched was healed. And this is where the story gets interesting in his sermon, 23. And we handed this man over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge to you and to me with the help of wicked men. And we put him to death by nailing him on the cross. We took the greatest, most loving, most kind, most powerful person, and we crucified him. But then it says this. The good news is not that he's dead, but that he's risen. And there's a reason he had to rise. On, on, on the third day, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him down. I want to know the seminary that Peter went to to preach this sermon. Like I want to know, I just want to sign up for it and I want to go to the class because it's not reported in the Bible or at least not explicitly so. But we have to ask ourselves, like from the last time we saw Peter talking about how many swords he's going to use in, 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 in battle and and how he's better than John, and how John, and I guess John's saying he's slower than, than, or John's faster than Peter. He's a different person. He's a different breed. And so in my study, I went back to Luke 22. I just sort of said, where's the last time that we saw this guy, and what can we understand? In Luke 22, you see the last occasion that we see of Peter before Jesus resurrects. The last time Peter sees Jesus is actually not a happy, robust joyful celebration. It is one of the saddest, most darkest, uh, broken times for Peter as a person. Verse 54 in Luke 22, they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following from a distance. That sad just feeling of, of just lack of control, of confusion, of hurt, Uncertainty, Verse 55, And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, and I think the scripture uses not only that it's a girl who was lower in social status, but also that she was a servant girl, to just show exactly how weak Peter was in this moment. Seeing him as he sat down in the light and, and looked closely at him, uh, said, This man was also with him. She calls him out about being with Jesus, about cooperating with him, but he denied it and saying, woman, I don't even know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you're the one, you're one of them. You're one of those 12 disciples. You're You're the band of brothers. You walked around everywhere with him. You know exactly who he is. I recognize you. And he says, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, and this is the third time which Jesus had already prophesied to him that he would deny him three times. Certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean, But Peter said, man, I do not know who you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And this one got me right here. I didn't even see 61. I've never even known this, but it says the Lord turned to He looked at him. I mean, what is it like to look at the the best friend, the best man, the the most powerful, and even who you'd expect to be the Messiah, and look at him and, and, and to, without verbal recognition, communicate, I've betrayed you. I'm no better than Judas. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. One time I, uh, I was um, getting babysat by Senpai, Sensei Linda's um, daughter. Her name was Linnea. She was about 16. And, um, and it was like, you know, it's like if you're getting babysat by your teacher, it's like, whoa, they have a house? Whoa, they don't wear karate gis all the time? Like it was like this big discovery thing. and uh, And so I remember like, talking to her, and sort of at a young age, I think it was about 10, realizing that like sh- her dad wasn't around, and so um, I was just so curious, you know, like you are about your teachers, you just want to know who they are and what they're like and how they take and all that stuff, and like, and so I, I got to kind of ask her, I got enough courage, I was like, hey, where's your dad, and she said, it's, it's kind of sad, actually, um, I never met my dad, because um, while my mom was pregnant with me, you know, 13 years ago, 15 years ago, um, he died kind of in a, in a car accident. And so I never got to meet my dad. I just have some of these pictures, and she kind of showed me. And I think there's something about, about pain and brokenness that lends itself towards, towards the authority that I talked about earlier with, with the way that uh, Sensei uh, Linda did, did karate. I think there's something in Luke chapter 22 that tells us about Acts chapter 2 when, when Peter stands up. I think there's a first-person experience. I think there's something to be said about coming to the end of yourself and finding God there. I mean, this is what he quotes in the middle of his sermon, quoting David. He says in verse 27, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Like, whoa, like realm of the dead. That's not Dallas Theological Seminary. Like, that's not the kind of stuff, like if it's not been written before, that you would just prophesy. Like, that. The realm of the dead, it feels poetic. It feels prophetic. It feels like somebody that's not just thinking about a theological idea. It feels like somebody that's been there before and is telling you about not just the theory, but their experience. And this is what he preaches. And I believe, honestly, as we read, I'm going to read these verses again, the the gospel that he preaches. It's as though as I read it, he's kind of preaching to the 3,000, but he's kind of even preaching it to himself. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus, the one that I knew, the one that I talked to, the one that I walked with, he was accredited by God, but also we could just see it. He was just full of miracles. He was full of all the stuff that the world couldn't offer. He, he broke all the rules and everything, every hunger and every need, like he just met them in all these ways. He reigned, as we sang earlier, in this most profound way, but he didn't reign like a king. He reigned like a servant, and he came in, and he established his kingdom in ways that could never be snuffed out. And the mystery of all this is, is not only that this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you helped him be betrayed to wicked men. But I was there, and I know that I helped him be betrayed to wicked men. There was two people that betrayed Jesus, and one of them, only one of them committed suicide. Peter is, is the remaining here. He's experienced this. This isn't a theological class to him. This is his life. This is his testimony. Like, this is where his heart was. In verse 24, he says, But I know, and I've seen with my own eyes, God has raised him from the dead. He's not going back anymore into the ground. He's been freed from the agony of death. He didn't even overcome just his own death. He overcame death itself. And I know, not from a theological premise or perspective that I think that someday is gonna be resurrected. I've been to the Valley of the Dead and I've seen that his presence is there and I know that his presence has fullness of joy and he will not allow your body to see decay for anybody that would receive the resurrection of Jesus. He has died in your place and if you would receive him, you would experience resurrection like me. And that's the difference between a sermon and a story. That's the difference between preaching an idea Or copying a kata or a form that some instructor taught you. And living it yourself and being broken in yourself and seeing it and being resurrected yourself. And I think that that the sermon, as it's boiled down, says something very, very profound. Because I feel like he's like Eminem, you know? He's like he got one shot. (laughs) He's not going to hold back. Like he preached, he really lets it go. And I think there's an awesome boldness, and like I said, and a clarity to it, of just kind of cutting to the point and cutting to the chase. He preaches really the only sermon that we ever really need to hear, and that is that Jesus Christ came and died for a reason. It was not on accident. It was by design, and it had a purpose, and the purpose is not so low as to think he came just to heal sick people, or he came just to teach a bunch of good lessons, or he came to cause a political empire to turn on its its belly. Jesus came to lead, for one purpose, to lead dead people into resurrection life. And and I I think that, that some of the places in my life, and I think you could attest to it too, some of the Sensei Linnea places, some of the Peter places in life, some of the places that I look and I calibrate and I think about some of the wonderful, beautiful, like powerful things that aren't under my control. They're just, they're just gifts. They're just sweet reminders of God's kindness. They're things that just work. They don't have to be struggled or strived over. Things like a relationship between me and my, my son, Leo. Like I'm his coach in soccer. And like the, the easy grace that comes about in that. Or, or, or just simple things like, um, like when I was in youth group, like, the way that there'd just be an easy laughter that would hit a room and it would just minister to to the students that were in that place. And it didn't have to be this orchestrated thing that came out of an iPad. It was just life happening. The greatest places of life, the greatest places of abundance and resurrection, a lot of them, they come from some of the deepest, darkest places in our life. They really do. If you tag tag back, you realize you didn't set the curriculum, you didn't teach yourself, you weren't self-instructed. And you didn't even set the itinerary or the agenda. You ended up there by the Lord's sovereign grace. It's because of your parents' divorce. I think of my, my, the Im- impact of that in my life, the impact of, of failures in my marriage, failures in my parenting, failures in ministry. I think about the selfish things that I have. I think about all the things that didn't go right. And I see how in the long run, how, how effective they are. So much more effective than, than Bible studies and, and all those things, again, are wonderful things. But, but these moments in life, these broken places, that they just, they bring you to this death. And in that place, you find a resurrection life. And I think, you know, like, Jesus has a powerful healing ministry. And that's some of the hard part about it is, is because he heals so well. Like, for, for, for like five years when I was a little kid, my mom tricked me that she said uh, she she didn't let me know they served McDonald's. They serve burgers at McDonald's, so the whole time I was going to McDonald's, I thought it was just the playground. So I just like hung out at it, you know. And she got me good because it was like not until I was like, wait a second, they got French fries here. Did you know they had fresh? Did you know they had French fries at McDonald's? Like I was super surprised by it. I think a lot of people in the Bible, a lot of people in our life, they go to Jesus for healings but they never go to him for resurrection. And the purpose why he came was not to give healings. The healings were to prove what he could do in a death situation so that he could cause a resurrection. That's what happened with the the woman with the issue of blood. Remember the girl? We thought that she was the sad story. Gosh, Jesus, like, you were so busy, you let the little girl die? And he got interrupted on purpose by this sovereign moment. But who gets the, ask yourself that question, who gets the better gift that day? The healing? or the resurrection. The resurrection happens when we go to the altar. And instead of asking him to fix the thing that we have in our hand, we lay it down at the altar and pick up the thing that he has in his hand. That's the process. That's the process. And I think we, 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 we like to entertain Jesus's healing ministry way more than we like to engage his resurrection ministry. We just don't think about it. It's an afterthought. And so we go to him with things like simple things, which is good, like headaches and, hey, I need some sleep, Lord, or hey, this thing's just not working right. And these are these kind of surface level things, you know, like I just, boy, Lord, like if you could just get me here on time, like this would be great. If you could help me find my keys, this would be great. It's like kind of surface level things. But I think it's in this sermon that Peter is telling us a deeper work in the gospel that's asking us beyond the healing into the resurrection life? And so that's the kind of just the simple question I would ask today from this scripture as we think about what the normal life would look like. Heaven's, heaven calls the normal life, beyond Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the resurrected life. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The only way to live is in the resurrected life. And sometimes it's the healings we're hanging on to that prohibits us from, from, the, resur- from the resurrection that we're looking for. And... Um, and, so, and so, the, so the healing is this place where, where we lay things down um, and this place where we recognize that actually we don't have to go to the Valley of Dry Bones to find that we're actually dead in certain areas. I think that's the thing, right? Like Peter comes back from his Valley of Ashes and he stands on that pulpit and he preaches to 3,000. And 3,000 people get to experience resurrection life without having to go to the place that Peter had to go. And I believe that that's true with almost all other places of life, because we we could almost sit here and think like, so does that just mean that we have to go through a traumatic experience or the loss of a loved one or stripping away of the future or loss of a dream or so on and so forth to like really experience life? And I don't think that's the case at all. Like I think there's kind of a movement that likes to stay in the broken place because that's where it feels good and that's where resurrection is like most readily available. But the truth is, is that resurrection is available to all of us right now by faith. And there's a lie that kind of says that like, if I had a little bit more, if things were a little bit better, if I had, if I was fixed in this way, or God, if you fix this problem in my life, then I would be healed. And then I could really live into abundant life. Well, the truth is, is that abundant life is right here to all that believe and all that have faith today. Resurrection life is ours today. And so maybe it just looks like literally this Friday, you go home from a hard week of work, And you say to yourself, on Monday, I'm going to go back to the same job that I've always been working and wear the same clothes that I've always been working. But in my mind, in my heart, I'm resigning from my job today. You have control of this job. You have control of the promotions and the demotions. I'm not playing the game anymore of trying to work my way up the ladder. I'm not doing the thing where I I feel like I'm the maker of my own destiny I can look back and see all the greatest gifts in my life were treasures that were just gifted to me and not things that I grabbed, and I want to see the type of not healed life that equals me kind of bringing things before God, learning, and then taking them back. I want to see a resurrection life. My life is short. My family is important, and I want to see what life is really like beyond the cross. I don't just want to get touched by you like the blind man. I don't just want to get healed by the woman like the woman with the issue of blood. I want you to resurrect my life. I want my family, my finances, my job, my church, my small group, my friendships to be in a resurrection life. I want the narrative of my life to be not be explained by the, by, the, by the summation of the things I put into it and the way that I plan it out and course correct things. I want it to be unexplainable. I want it to be powerful. I want it to be a but God moment. I want it to be a surrender I want it to be something that can't be explained without the gospel, without the power of the cross, without him. What if it's a what if it's a moment when you realize that cleanliness isn't as good as godliness as you thought, you know, and you and instead of trying to like Martha, Martha, the whole thing up and get everything fixed up. You continue to take a pace with the Lord of abiding, but you all of a sudden lay down your right to, to sort of keeping your house in order and you realize that your house time actually in a resurrected place when God hands it back to you is actually intercession time. And all of a sudden, when you laid down your agenda about what you wanted to do in your day, God, help me do my day, help me plan my thing, help me accomplish my goals. And you just say, I've been to the Valley of Dry Bones in this area, this area, and this area. It's been proven in all three. There's no reason for me to expect there's any life in any of the other paths except for you. So I'm going to lay down all three of these things, which is easy. It's easy to lay down problems. It's easy to lay down hard things. It's harder to lay down good things. That's why the rich young ruler always runs away so quickly. But to take something that's working, that's not even broken yet, and just lay it down and say, I don't want a fixed life. I want a resurrected life. I want a full life. I want a life full of your power, full of your presence. I believe that's what Andre was sharing about when he was on stage for the Say Yes campaign. He was talking about a resurrected real estate story. It's it's saying... I'm going to give you this house and the process to this house because I think I can actually get a pretty good house, but I want a resurrected one. It's, 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 it's Timothy's story. If you've ever heard, just pull up a chair with him and have coffee with him time and, and ask him how his name got changed from Eric to Timothy. To actually lay down your name and say, I like this name. It's the name that's always been given to me and it's worked out for me. It's been pretty cool and things have gone well but I don't want just the normal life. I want your normal life. I want a resurrected life, so I'm laying this one down too. I believe we have access to it. We don't need pain to access to it. We just need faith. We need an opportunity to say yes to him and imagine a greater normal life than we have going for us right now. I'll close with this, but in this series, we'll look at the three different values. This one is exalt, which is about him, and equip is about the family of God, and extend is about how the kingdom is extending. But one of the key words that we will always hold true to in this service, especially because it's an exalt service, but in our congregation, is in exalt, there's three words that we, that we use as, as navigators, as guide maps for navigating, exalting Jesus. And that's to seek and saturate and surrender. And the, and the one word out of all those three, we've done all those three, but the one word I feel like we've been talking about the most is that last one, that's surrender. It's a white flag. It's a white flag position towards Christ, It's saying, I'm not trying to get fixed here, I'm trying to lay this before you and and receive your life and what you have to give to me. And here's what I wanna say about that. As you process through and as we continue to process through who we are as a church and what makes us city lights and what our calling is and what's not changing, there's chaos all around all the time. We're never lacking in chaos, but the calling always remains the same. And what we've been called to do in this church, Sunday through Sunday, is to continue to exalt Jesus everywhere we are And I want to say this to you just for the sake of this sermon is that all good exalting leads you to surrender. Exalting and seeing and seeking Jesus and leaving unchanged is not true exalting. It's the man who hears the word of God, the fool who walks away and never changes anything. Every time we come into his presence is an opportunity to agree with him because he has a better portion for our life. So the question we have for us today is do we want the fixed up life or do we want the resurrected life? The life that he promised, the life that we're designed for, the life that ultimately is, 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 man, this life is such a vapor, but this is the one that goes on for eternity. This is the life that Peter steps into, and I believe that we don't have to endure pain and hardship to find it, although it's usually found there. But we can preach to ourselves in all sorts of mountains and valleys and find the Lord is still in each of those things, and surrender will always lead to resurrection life. Let's stand and respond this morning. Holy Spirit, Father Jesus, we thank you, Trinity, for being with us and continuing to speak to us. I ask you for an actual resurrection transaction for our church. We lay down the ability to be leadership oriented and slick and fun and cool and uh, have it all together and have all the five-year plans marked out. God, we wanna have plans, but we like to have plans so that you can interrupt them. And I just ask that as this congregation, whichever building we ever gather under, that you would always find a white flag over it. It says, if you want to interrupt it, we, we know way better than to insist on a fixed life compared to a resurrected life. We ask you for a resurrected life in this place in Jesus' name. We ask you for unidentifiable stories and characters. We ask for page turners that we literally look at the, the day today and we ask, where did this person come from? What seminary did they go to to have this kind of authority? We thank you for the real thing, God. We know that you're doing it through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we know that every valley and every corner that we would walk into, we're going to find your grace and your glory. And we know that by faith, through the testimony and the blood of the Lamb, that you are embarking in us a resurrection life that goes way more and farther than Easter. Thank you for not only healing us, but bringing dead people to life. We seek you now and surrender to you in all your ways. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.